Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and I'm really honored and really excited to be here today with another proud JOMA member, Dr. Rachel Berman. Before I introduce Dr. Berman, I'm going to remind you if there's any topic you want to hear, if you want to be interviewed, you know someone who you would like to hear interviewed, you have comments on any of the talks, please reach out to us at healthhealth at joma.org. We want to hear from you. Also, this talk was inspired by our specialty spotlight episode with Dr. Rachel Berman. Specialty Spotlight is a once a month feature, which I don't do the interviews for, but we have fantastic interviewers for. And one of the interviewers, um, I believe it was Hadassah, um, interviewed Dr. Berman about her work. She is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Academic General Pediatrics at Children's Hospital at Montefiore and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And she does a form of um, social medicine. So it's very interesting. Um, she talked a lot about social determinants of health and structural determinants of health. And after I heard it, I really understood much more how important they were. And it was like my eyes were opened and it's really um, changed even how I practice medicine. So I hope that people will listen to this. I think that there is a lot to learn from Dr. Berman on this topic. So back to her bio, again, as I said before, she's assistant professor of pediatrics in the division of academic general pediatrics at Children's Hospital at Montefiore and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She earned her bachelor's in social anthropology at Harvard University in 2004 and her MD and master's of public health at Boston University School of Medicine and School of Public Health in 2010. She then completed her pediatric residency at the Boston Combined Residency Program in Pediatrics in 2013, followed by a residency in preventative medicine in Boston Medical Center in 2015. She practices general pediatrics and she served as her clinic's clinician champion for social needs screening and referrals. She teaches residents and medical students and through a grant from the American Medical Association's Reimagining Residency Initiative, she had been working to develop a curriculum on social and structural determinants of health for residents in pediatrics, internal medicine, family medicine, and obstetrics and gynecology. Most recently, she is participating in the 2022-2023 United Hospital Funds PEDS, PEDS Network Fellowship Program, which provides early career pediatricians with mentorship and support for projects that aim to improve health equity for young children and families. Her project specifically focuses on sharing opportunities for civic engagement with their patients and their families. Outside of work, Dr. Berman serves as a founding board member of the Interfaith Public Health Network, a nonprofit organization that aims to engage and mobilize faith communities to improve the health of our communities through addressing social, commercial, environmental, and political determinants of health. Dr. Berman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Now, I'm really excited, and um, I, I heard you speak on the Specialty Spotlight, which episodes which we come at once a month, and they're really geared towards pre-meds. And they're really about your specialty, but you talked a lot about social determinants of health. And I don't think I really understood until I heard you speak about it, the importance and, and what they really are. So I would like if you could to start just with the definition of what social determinants of health are, please. Yes. So um, there's a lot of terms out there. Um, we throw around social determinants of health, social needs, structural determinants of health. So first, um, for social determinants of health, and this definition comes from the World Health Organization, um, they are the conditions or circumstances in which people are born, grow up, and age that affect their overall health, health risks, and quality of life. So for example, um, they tend to point to five, like economic stability, neighborhood and built environment, education, access to healthcare, and social and community context. 
Now, very important, um, social determinants are not necessarily bad or harmful. I think our brains often jump there. Um, they're just determinants that can have either positive or negative effects on our health. Um, there's a concept, for example, called social integration, which is one's ability to actively participate in the social, cultural, economic, and political life in their community. So being socially integrated would be a positive social determinant of health. So we know, though, that social determinants of health are not evenly distributed in our society. Um, and what influences how they are distributed is the structural determinants of health. These are these larger forces that um, impact how our social needs, social determinants are distributed. Things like the social, economic, and political mechanisms that divide um, our societies into different social classes. Um, and one major form, um, the one major key player, I would say, in these mechanisms would be discrimination of different kinds, whether it's due to gender, religion, race, ethnicity, immigration status, et cetera. Size. <laughs> I, I did the implicit bias test for fat bias, and I found out that I am fat biased. <laughs> very disappointed. Yeah, those are, yeah, those are jarring to do with the implicit bias test, but they're important to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't realize it. We think that we're not biased, but we are. We all are well, in it's, a lot of ways. It's, it's an adaptive mechanism to have bias, but it can also be harmful, so... Yeah, but being aware is, you know, a big part, I think. So how did you get interested in all this? This is an unusual area of interest. Yeah, probably because okay. I'm I'm an anthropologist at heart and I became a doctor. That's kind of <laughs> that's kind of how I ended up in this. But yeah, it's hard to pinpoint exactly. But again, I think it was really in college when I was um studying, it was really medical anthropology, um, that my eyes became opened to social and structural determinants of health. Um, it was really interesting to me that our cultures, our physical and our social environments um, more strongly impact our health and our well-being than the medical care that we receive. Um, I, you know, I was saying I'm not really such a scientist person. I'm more of an anthropology person. So for me, this was part of medicine that I could really relate to. Um, and then also I think- um, Wait, wait, my... wait. I want you to say that slower because that was really <laughs> important. Go back. I like, what I learned during my medical anthropology courses was that our cultures and our physical and our social environments more strongly impact our health than the medical care that we receive. Whoa. So for me, that was um, very eye-opening. Um, and made me more interested in social determinants of health. Um, and also there's a social justice component to all of this, mm -hmm. which for me was really passed down to me from my, my parents, probably my grandparents. So that's what led me to follow this path of studying social determinants and structural determinants of health. And you're also a pediatrician. Yes. And I think that is one of the reasons why I think I became a pediatrician is because we are more um, open to like we like there's more of a holistic view when mm -hmm. you're taking care of a child because it's not just the child but you have to talk to the all the members of the family um, and there's a school situation that's involved so it's the whole social piece um, it makes it easier to to be interested in social determinants of health as a pediatrician I think yeah I, I want to give a shout out to my old boss I used to work in Brooklyn in a practice um, called Cortelia Road Pediatrics and he used to call it holistic pediatrics with a W People got that confused with holistic with an H and a lot of them had more alternative bent that were drawn to us, but <laughs> it wasn't about alternative medicine at all. And he also was a, a social medicine person. I don't know if he did anthropology also in college. I kind of think that he did. Um, his name is Dr. James Goff. And this is one is for him, this holistic pediatric, holistic medicine title. Yeah, I um, love that title. <laughs> yeah. So now I really want to talk about why they're important. You mentioned that it's important. You mentioned that it affects our health more than the medical care, which I don't know that doctors fully understand that. Right. So I alluded to that, um, but there's, so these are a lot of different studies, um, but they've shown that only about 10 to 20% of our health is determined by the healthcare that we receive, and about 40% or more is determined by social and economic factors. Um, now, it's also important to note that social and economic factors deeply influence like these other um, contribu contributors to our health, including our health behaviors. So things like you know smoking, how much exercise we get, um, also our access to healthcare and our physical environment are very much determined by um, social and economic factors. Um, so there's, again, I was saying there's been a lot of studies that was a computerized model that gave those percentages, but a lot of studies have looked at, you know, income and health um, 
and they've and also types of employment um, and they've shown that you know your level of income and also your type of in employment might um, you know is associated with your risk of having a heart attack um, also people who have diabetes um, depending on their income and their you know the proximity that they live to a grocery store affects their management of their diabetes um, and as you said, you know, a lot of doctors don't realize this. I think like a lot of people in general don't realize the importance of social and structural determinants of health um, because in our healthcare culture in the United States, we're less focused on health prevention, mm -hmm. which again, the pediatricians have an advantage there because mm -hmm. everything we do is prevention. Um, and we're much more reactionary in our healthcare culture. We're focused more on treatment once someone already has the disease. Wait, right before I got on this podcast, I saw an ad for a hot it wasn't an ad it was an article about a program where people can call in for maternal mental health because they saw that maternal mental health is not doing well in this country and so it's an emergency hotline that they can call in and I said well that's nice that's not a bad thing it's a good thing but to me it's so reactive because it doesn't get to any of the problems that led to the decline in maternal mental health right I think that's um you know, this is like a larger <laughs> discussion, but I think um, in the United States, we are reactionary like that in other mm -hmm. countries. And I have like beautiful slides that I share with our residents about this, but um, like with our life expectancy compared to other countries. Um, and so much of it is is related to um, how we spend our our healthcare dollars. Um, so we spend it much more on treatment. Other countries do more prevention. And part of that prevention is actually investing in social services, not just right. investing in healthcare. So, yeah. Right. I've heard that, that there's going to be a push towards more value-based care. I feel like there already kind of is. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not like an health economics person. So right. like, I feel right. like that I mean, might be a good thing. That um, that but, could change things. I mean, if 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 the people if we were making money from keeping people keeping people healthy, I mean, the bottom line is it's still an industry. It's still yeah. an industry. You still and need to make money. Make you need to make your shareholders happy. You need to show the value, right? So, I don't know. I'm idealistic. I'm hoping that someday it will make money for people to be healthier because right now it doesn't. Yeah, the the, the and I I think in general that's good to be incentivized by keeping our patients healthier. The problem is is that if you're working in places where there's more social needs, um, it's going to create a larger gap with our like you know worse health equity in health inequities because people who are coming from places where social determinants of health are you know, unevenly distributed are more negative, right? So if there's more social needs, then no matter what the doctor does, you're not going to, you know, be able to get these people as healthy as someone who's living in a, you know, more resource filled environment. Um, you know, you like to talk with obesity, right? So, I mean, I, we take care of so many kids who have obesity, you know, I can talk to them until I'm blue in the face about the importance right. of exercise and eating healthy. But if they don't, if their parents don't feel safe sending them to the park, or if they don't have money to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, like, no matter how much of that value type of care I provide with education and prevention, um, these are larger forces, again, than me that are influencing my patient's health. It's absolutely true. And, 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 you know, this is a hot topic for me. You look at my podcast, like, that's all I'm doing, you know, because of the AAP guidelines. And I think we're so frustrated because yes, we, we want to be prevented. If the guidelines were not about prevention, first mm -hmm. of all, by definition, um, but we're, 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 we have so much on our shoulders that we, we feel like we, we can't do. It doesn't help, right, to point out, say, a weight, a child's weight, that, that's not that's not therapeutic. That's not helpful. And so how do you address these needs? I mean, that that is the big thing. I mean, I, I did want to ask also about um, adverse childhood events. But before we get to those, um, screening for these structural determinants of health or social determinants of health, should we be screening? Right. So that, you know, what to do about them, right? Like, how do we, when we feel stuck mm -hmm. like that, right, when we talk to our patients, um, is a similar kind of problem when these needs are visible, um, whether it's revealed to you during, you know, the parent tells you during a patient encounter or whether you screen for them. Um, and it's really, it's really complicated um, because, you know, if the, like in general, we say only screen 
if you can intervene. So if you right. can do something about it um, ethically, um, it's not really ethical to screen if you can't do anything about it. Um, if we don't have resources we can offer to a family, um, if we don't have like a social worker or a mental health provider who can, you know, this is more screening for ACEs, which we'll get to, but um, if they're not available, then like some people would say don't screen at all. Um, and screening also has like this, this is another hot top term is like unintended consequences. So um, there's a lot of, these are sensitive questions that we're asking mm. families about social needs or about average childhood experiences. Um, and if we ask them, we can actually erode the trust that we've developed with, like, um, with yeah. the family. Um, you know, if you ask and then you can't do anything about it, like if I ask, like, do you have a stable living environment? And they say, no. And I say, oh, okay, that's nice. And I Sorry. move to the next yeah. thing. It's kind of like, why did I ask? Like now my, now I've like, made, you know, the patient or the parent is I've made myself vulnerable now and they're not even going to do anything about it. I don't want to tell them about any of this kind of stuff again. Um, so it's, it can erode trust. Um, and so, um, and it can also like exacerbate already existing mental health problems. So if a parent is already stressed, but they've been able to sort of compartmentalize that a little bit, and then you bring it up and make it fresh and raw during, you know, when you're talking about it, it's like, oh, that wound is like opened up again, oh. you know, about feeling homeless. So it's, there's a lot of these un unintended consequences, um, especially if you can't do anything about it. And so you know, when we do screen, we need to make sure. And I, I think I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of screening. Um, and you know, there, it's going to start to be required, like, or not required, but hospitals will be able to be reimbursed for screening for social needs in the near future. Um, and so it's going to be a more a, like, it's going to have been more and more commonly that people are going to be screened for social determinants of health and adverse childhood experiences. Um, and so we are going to need to catch up our resources in order to make sure that screening is ethical. Um, I do think that it's helpful, though, also just to get a sense of where where my patients are. So knowing why this child's asthma still is not getting better, even though they're taking all their meds just like they should be, because you know what, there's mold that the right. hasn't been fixed or the heater is not working or whatever it is. So I think it's like important information to have, even if I can't act on it. But again, it's so important to talk about it in a sensitive, culturally humble way. Um, and so, um, but that's a really important yeah. point that we really have to keep our resources up with what we're asking. Mm -hmm. I mean, to do more harm than good by screening is not a good thing. No, no. Um, again, we're needing to invest our dollars in different ways and preventive ways as opposed to reactionary ways. I mean, every time I talk about this, I don't want people listening to be frustrated. And I really do. I'm putting out a cry now to other healthcare professionals. I know you're really busy, but in any way, if you can advocate for resources, those of you who are political, bless your souls, because I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to make this a political podcast, but I, I won't. It's a, it's a medical health podcast, but unfortunately, it's all intertwined. And I, I think we keep dancing around the fact that we just have inadequate preventative resources. Yeah. Yeah. I like doing support. advocacy. I'm not yeah. like a loud sort of lobbyist advocate, but um, you know, we say when I go with the American Academy of Pediatrics, we say we're, we're here for the kids, right? We're not trying to be political, but um, ways to... Um, just keep our children healthier. And there, there is one very easy thing that you can do um, if you come across, even if it's a friend, if, I mean, if you're a doctor listening, um, you can share this website with your, um, with your patients, but also if you have someone and it's a friend um, who's having trouble, it's called findhelp.org. Um, and you can put in your zip code. I, I want to say that this is national, not just New York, but um you can put in your zip code and then there's different categories of needs that you might have, whether it's childcare, looking for employment, um, food, um, all these different categories that you can click on and it'll give you a list of resources in your like local community. Right. And, and lay people also, you know, not doctors can also do advocacy work. Mm -hmm. I think grassroots, you know, can be really, really effective because I, I can tell you as a pediatrician, I'm so frustrated by the inadequate coverage of mental health, eating disorders, nutrition. I mean, all of these things are so related to our health and yet they're usually not covered. They're either not covered or there's just no providers available. Right, <laughs> right. or both. Or both. Right, so that's really problematic because I'm identifying problems, right? Say I'm now supposed to be talking about a child's weight at a, you know, 
putting aside all the issues, we're not going down that rabbit hole right now. <laughs> but um, what am I supposed to do? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I, I also think and this is something that I've talked to one of my mentors about um, in doing screening for social needs in our clinic. Um, and we are very fortunate. We have a community health worker um, that we can refer patients to who is like super knowledgeable about the community and the different resources we have. Um, I'm in the Bronx. So, um, but in, you know, if you have an established trusted relationship with someone, again, I'm talking doctor patient, but this could also be friend to friend um, or teacher to student um, or teacher to student's parent, um, just asking and like showing that you care about these issues. Cause you know, if the family has social needs, it's a struggle, right? Um, and showing that you care about it can be therapeutic in itself. So, you know, mm -hmm. talking to a child and talking about their anxiety or whatever it might be, even if you're not that mental health provider that's going to do cognitive behavioral therapy for them, just like saying like, I care about you and I care about this topic and I see this topic is important for you or this issue is important for you. That is in some way a little bit therapeutic. I mean, I'm an optimist, so I, I'm hoping mm -hmm. that I'm helping my patients just by talking to them and showing that I care. Um, but I, I do think that it helps. I think it helps also to understand that when you're providing a treatment and you're open to the fact that the treatment might not really be realistic. Like this is just very like a silly example, not a silly example, but an obvious example is that when you prescribe an antibiotic and you tell a parent, here's your antibiotic to take four times a day for your child, <laughs> right? Pretty much nobody can do that. No, I've not been able to get my kids to take antibiotics. Right. So I think pediatricians are, are, are really good about that. We try not to do anything more than twice a day, but to also know, do they have a refrigerator? You know, do they have working electricity? Like all of these kind of things. Do they have access to fresh fruits and vegetables before you tell them to go eat more fruits and vegetables? It sounds obvious, but even if you can't fix the problem, at least you're not going to berate them, which you shouldn't berate anyway. It, it should factor into how you do your care. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Just having awareness that this could be problematic for a family um, is really helpful in how you give them that anticipatory guidance. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is why I like to refer to a nutritionist and not just try to give pat standard nutrition advice to every family that, you know, goes through. I only have a few minutes. It's not right. going to be tailored. Right. right. But a nutritionist can go through their daily schedule exactly. or the weekly schedule and know when the parent's working, when they can cook at home and provide healthy food. Right. And we're working very hard. We, I'm part of Allied Pediatrics, which is a large pediatric supergroup. And we had someone who was our nutritionist. She left and we are now creating a list so that we have coverage for everybody. You know, all insurances, Medicaid, everything. We have to find somebody. We can't just throw up our hands and have no resources. It's not yeah. okay. And that's great. I think, and that collaboration is re also really important because, you know, I feel like a lot of hospital systems or clinics are, are sort of independent silos, but if we can collaborate and share resources, that's really helpful. Yeah. I want to talk a little more about silos because that that's a really important point. And that's something that I feel very passionately about, about collaborating. So I'll let you talk a little bit about okay. that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I so I just went to like a conference um, for local New York pediatricians on Friday and got to hear about what people are doing about social determinants of health in their different institutions. And it's like, wow, we should be doing that. So I think just having like opening lines of communication to see what different people are doing. But I think where we really have silos is healthcare system and then like community-based organizations and there's mm. not, and, and also schools. Um, I mean, I'm a pediatrician. So for me, schools are really important, but mm -hmm. um, there's not enough like integrated care and there's a lot of movement towards doing this, but it's just really hard. Um, I, you know, whether it's hard for privacy reasons or hard for reimbursement reasons, probably all of the above, um, but just really, you know, the community-based organizations you know, really know there are also religious institutions, right? They mm -hmm. know the people in their communities, they know what the needs are, and they know how to address them. So when these needs arise during, you know, like a visit with the doctor, um, you know, being able to sort of have a partnership with a community organization to refer to um, is really, is really helpful. So I think we need to break down those silos, um, you know, without sort of harming privacy. That's fantastic because instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, you're saying these are wheels that are already there and connecting them. Right. And it also makes the community empowered, right? So it's like they are dictating what, what their needs are and how they want to meet those needs. Um, telling the hospitals and doctors like 
this is reality. This is what needs to be done. Like, you know, as opposed to it going the other way. You know, that's making me think of there's an amazing book, The Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down. Yes, I'm I love sure that. you I read that. that <laughs> <laughs> My daughter recently had to read it. Um, mm-hmm. She's an occupational therapy student. And so I reread it. It's unbelievable. The Spirit, I should link it to the show notes. Yeah, no, that's an amazing book. That's all about cultural humility and knowing, you know, you have to prioritize what people are prioritizing if you are trying to help them. Because if, you know, if there's a mismatch there, then you're not going to go anywhere. Right. And even their view of illness Mm -hmm. can be different than yours. So I think that that's really important. But I love that idea of partnering. I was actually thinking of utilizing other, you know, specialists like therapists, nutritionists and stuff like that. I think there's silos there too that people don't talk to each other yeah. and that you can build a team, even if you don't have a multidisciplinary team integrated in, which is the ideal. And we, you know, you kind of alluded to the fact that we, you know, it's not working out so well for us in America <laughs> <laughs> in most places for whatever reason, we're not going to anyway, um, <laughs> try not to stay. <laughs> um, no, because I really want that. I mean, that it makes a huge difference to have a team. And even when you have integrated behavioral health, um, I listened to the Pediatric Meltdown podcast with Leah Cagino and she had integrated behavioral health. It's huge. I mean, we have- We have that. Health. Yeah. And I didn't have it when I trained in Boston and it is like, makes a world of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, social worker, psychologist. Um, yeah. So even if it's not, they're not physically present, but if you have their phone number, you can email right. them um, just to have that partnership um, with- And other- I feel bad saying it because it is, you know- First of all, there's just HIPAA laws and, and and privacy laws. And I feel like when it comes to social and mental health, there's like extra levels, extra, you know, barriers to that privacy. Um, I mean, privacy is good, but it just makes it so hard and we're short on time. So, you know, I, I don't want to say this like it's no big deal. Um, and that's why I think that for the for the lay people, for the parents, you know, the patients um, to be helping pull it together, you can be the team leader here. You know, you can help coordinate things. You can sign consent forms. You can make phone calls and really make it so much better. Have, you know, people write letters to each other, send over. I mean, just trying to get the forms in from the specialists <laughs> can be a part-time job. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that, that that's really helpful. Let's go back to ACEs because I really did want to mm-hmm. talk about them, please. Yeah, so ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. Um and they are very much intertwined with social and structural determinants of health. Um, so when we talk about ACEs, what what we mean are um, these potentially traumatic events that would occur in childhood. That's how the CDC defines ACEs. Um, they generally fall under three categories, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction, which can include living with a caregiver who has a substance use disorder or a mental health condition, um, if a child has witnessed violence and also parental separation. So I think that's what they lump under household um, dysfunction. Um, they've been expanded to include witnessing community violence and feeling unsafe in someone's neighborhood, experiencing discrimination and bullying and also being in foster care. Those are the, the Philadelphia ACEs. So they added it for more um, like community type level um, trauma. So um, I think really like experiencing social needs um, very much can be considered an adverse childhood experience. So if you're a child and like you're hungry because your parent can't feed you and also pay for the heat at the same time, like that's really traumatic. So I think, in, I mean, I've never seen this model before when I look at the different definitions and models, but I almost feel like a social need is another ACE. <laughs> um, it falls under that umbrella. Um, and I think that when we address one, we have to address the other. Um, and when I, when we are trying to address a trauma, like we also have to think about social needs and, you know, what's contributing. It, I, I think about it like in this like triangle, right? So social needs, um, adverse childhood experiences and structural forces, they're just mm-hmm. sort of this whole kind of, they, they just are so influ- much influencing each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you address one, you also kind of have to address and ask about the others. Because probably if someone's experienced trauma, maybe they have some, you know, like mental health implications from that, depression, PTSD, whatever it is, it's probably harder to get a job, um, maybe. Um, and then that kind of feeds into maybe more social needs. Um, and so it's just, it's all just so interrelated. Right. Or the parents are substance you know, abusers and there's food insecurity and so on and so forth. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, I can see how they can interact. So those can be screened for as well, but it's the same caveat. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think those questions are even more sensitive than social, like social needs questions. Um, so you just have to be so careful about how you ask it. Um, paper screeners are sometimes better than asking like the screening questions about ACEs. Um, there's a lot of, there's research though that shows sometimes the paper screeners, you get more um, accurate responses than speaking in person. But I think for ACEs actually, when someone asks you, the, like has asked people questions, they get more accurate responses. I, I'd have to go back and find. You, you the, see, the but the reality that. is it is easier to do a paper or computer screen than to talk. You don't have that much time and you cannot raise no, the time. No, reality, we don't have questions. Time. And so I do think that a paper or a computer screen not only may it give people confidence because of kind of there's, they're not being asked directly. It's kind of not anonymous, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not face to face. It's not as daunting, um, but it's time. It's a time saver. Yeah, it and is. It's, it's a, you're able to have it phrased in the most sensitive possible way. So I, I am. I am a big fan of of the paper screens. And it's even I'm not better. a big fan of being asked to screen for a million things face to face in a ten minute visit. It is not possible. It's not possible. No, it's not possible. And it's even better when people do it. Um, we have my chart. So when they do it pre like prior to the visit, and then it automatically populates into your chart that's like a one in a million it never happens but when it does it's like it's such a gift <laughs> otherwise we have to be that. I've never had such an experience <laughs> otherwise we have to like type you know you type in each of the responses but anyhow that's like a, a primary care frustration talk right because the, the flip <laughs> the flip side of not picking up something that you may not be able to address adequately is not knowing what's affecting your patients I mean it's so obvious right. and that's why I think it, if you can't do anything sort of immediately about it you have to talk about it in a sensitive way um, be culturally humble and say you know thank you for sharing this with me it really helps me understand you know what's going on and how it's affecting your health you know and like, we're going to work on this together. Like this is going to be a long-term process as opposed to like, see you later in a year when you have your next annual checkup, you know? Right. And you can also have them come back for another visit, which may or may not be easy. You may have telehealth as an option because you really should yeah. understand, are they coming by bus and they don't have the money for the fare, you know, because they don't have a car. Is it really, you know, they don't have childcare and they're working two jobs. Like, you know, those kind of things are important to know in terms of follow-up. I, I do find it very hard to get people back for social, mental health, you know, nutrition follow-up, which are the ones I need the most time for. <laughs> I know. And like telemedicine is so helpful with that. They've really limited yeah. our ability to do that um, just because with the COVID no. changes and stuff. So, um, but I think that that's like a perfect thing for, for telemedicine. <laughs> right. Also telemedicine gives access to say providers from other states who still are licensed so that you have much more, you know, access to other, you know, to providers. Maybe your area doesn't have, or doesn't have anybody with open slots, but you could find it by telehealth. Yeah, so I do I like not understand the limiting of it. I do not understand that at all. I don't know. I, I mean, they're like the reimbursement is different, but again, that's like health of economics, which is not, yeah, my brain not, is not we, good at that. <laughs> mine isn't either. And we have no control over that. And I'm just trying to like make the best of the situation. Yeah. I'm, I can't ignore it though. Like once you see something, you can't unsee it. No, you can't. That's so true. Yeah. I try to squeeze in televisits when I can. <laughs> um, just it's not part of like my template, but I think it's really helpful. And, you know, I have some patients that are now up in college upstate or wherever they are. So um, to be able to check in with them um, when they're many miles away is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, um, we already talked about the biopsychosocial model versus the medical model a little bit. I mean, really you, you alluded to the fact that the medical model is more disease focused, but I don't think we really went into detail and I really do want to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I was excited when I saw this as one of our topics because I did a little bit of this in my my senior thesis research in, in college, which was looking at diabetes on American Indian reservations and, you know, looking at the Western biomedical model compared to some other sort of models, including like the Native American kind of model of health. So um, again, like there's a lot of different models out there. Um, 
model, models of health and wellness. Um, and they're continuing to evolve. We just had a grand rounds last week that there was like a new kaleidoscope model. And I'm like, hmm, that's fascinating, right? So they're always evolving. Um, but the traditional Western biomedical model is framed by these two major Western ideologies. Um, I feel like a lot of what goes on in the United States is framed by these ideologies. Um, one is naturalism or just like objective reality. You see it, that's it. Um, that's, that's truth. Um, and then individualism. And so these um, uh, individualism is when like the individual and the individual freedom are really the highest priorities. Um, that's what we value the most. And so in this model, the mind and the body are really separate entities and like individual people themselves are held solely accountable for following medical advice and keeping themselves healthy. Um, so it's talking about silos, right? Okay. Um, other it's models- right yeah, other models really view the mind, body, and spirit as intimately linked, um, and all of those pieces need to be in harmony in order to have optimal health and wellness. Um, and then there's other models like the biopsychosocial model, which incorporates elements of our physical and social environments and their understanding of what contributes to health and wellness. So again, lots of models out there. Um, and I think, um, but you know, I, I think that whichever one sort of makes the most sense in your head, I think you can't leave out the influence of our social environments and also like the mind body connection is just like it, it's just connected <laughs> like they're not separate like um every day that's very much in my face when I, when every patient I see even my own kids right <laughs> right I mean I could say strep is like so classic you know you give an antibiotic and it goes away but even then you know were you able to pick up the medication were you able to refrigerate it were you able to give it were you able to get it to the kid's school whatever um that's still but I mean so much of the conditions that we are dealing with now are so much more interconnected mind and body and these are the these are the kind of conditions where you end up going from silo to silo from specialist to specialist and getting very frustrated because no one's putting it all together Right. I think, yeah, with COVID and all of the mental health implications of that, mm -hmm. you know, more and more kids who have, you know, what we call functional abdominal pain, right. headaches, mm -hmm. like, and just like flat out anxiety and depression, which right. really have very physical manifestations. Right. It goes both ways. And that's the whole problem is the typical pattern in America is you go, kid has a stomachache or an adult has a stomachache and they go to the gastro and everything's done normal. And then they go to the cardiologist because they had some chest pain and da, 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 And finally they say, well, we've worked you up. Nothing's wrong. It must be in your head and they'll give another names to it to make it sound like functional has become the new psychosomatic which used to be hysterical yeah. right yeah. i mean it's still like this like you said this dichotomy this mind body dichotomy it's very very frustrating and i think that's why you know since since we first talked about doing this talk months ago <laughs> and now i've done so many talks on these kind of topics and i really understand i'm hoping that you know our listeners to this talk will understand why these are so important, these, you know, structural, social determinants of health and ACEs. Yeah, I think that the recognition of how important they are is, you know, that is a huge motivation for why there's going to be reimbursement for screening for, for um, I, I don't know about ACEs, but certainly social determinants of our social needs. Um, so I feel like maybe that's like one major step in the right direction where we're kind of like, putting aside our history of this biomedical model and really embracing the newer models of um, mind, body, spirit connection um, and social environment connection, biopsychosocial. Um, yeah, but I think that there's this really frustrating, you're aware of it before you can do anything about a problem. We keep coming back to that. Yeah, we have to fight true. for those resources. As, as we're becoming more aware, we have to fight for the resources tooth and nail. Right, and I always like to say, I mean, right, I, I think, you know, Every, I, a lot of things start out theoretical, not everything, but if we're sort of starting out theoretical and saying, okay, how we reimburse for healthcare is moving away from the biomedical model. Now we want to reimburse for, for you know, physicians who um, recognize social needs and who are, you know, treating or providing resources for social needs and also for mental health, like integrated behavioral health, right? If you're going to be able to be, I hate that everything is always revolving around money, but I feel like <laughs> when, when, when money is put into something, it means that it's, you know, it's important or it's valid, right? If the government is giving money from this. Um, so I think that if we're, we're sort of recognizing that this theory is maybe going to be more helpful to people, this biopsychosocial um, model. Um, and then, you know, it'll hopefully trickle down to some resources, but I, I you know, I'm maybe that'll start to undo that pers that sort of um, 
emphasis on treatment um, and being reactionary, maybe it'll start to move us a little shifting to like prevention and like investing more in like social care as a preventive method. I know we, we're going to need financial incentivizing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm <trying to> be <laughs> as idealistic as you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, we were kind of alluding to what multidisciplinary um, approach or, or these resources. What are we talking about? Right. So I think that um, there's like that quote, you know, like, I don't know. Well, anyways, I think that, um, you know, we have to recognize, I mean, I like as a physician or maybe someone who's a teacher or, you know, whatever your profession is, um, recognizing that you can't do everything. I think that's really hard for doctors. It's hard for pediatricians like to not be able to just fix things and be able to do everything on your own. Um, but recognizing there are other experts um, that you need to work with um, as a team. So whether it's that the nutritionist or the social worker, psychologist, and a community health worker um, who are gonna be better at doing something than you are, right? Um, they know more about something than you. Um, and so being able to work, work together um, and, you know, it's it's hard because again we have these silos of the community um, based organizations you know separate mental health clinics separate you know primary care offices um, so trying to break down those walls um, and whether that's through partnerships or through if it's through like a physical presence if you're hiring a social worker in your practice your health, like primary care practice um, so that's what we have we have integrated behavioral health and we have a community health worker so I think that's starting to um, you know just really recognizing the importance of a multidisciplinary approach to to social needs and just to health and well-being in general right I want to go back to something you said a while ago you also mentioned the individualistic part of our culture and I do see that I see that with healthcare professionals you know all thinking, it's me, right? It's my job, right? More of an individualistic approach. And also for the patients slash parents, like I have a lot of resistance to getting um, on board with a nutritionist and it doesn't, it's not even necessarily related to access or coverage. It's mm -hmm. no, I know how to do this. I got this. Right. Yeah. I mean, they say it takes a village, right? And we all know this in our different communities, even though our like theoretical like sort of western culture is very individualistic I don't think that's reality for most people um I mean I guess it all depends it, it depends on your community that's I, I don't feel that in my community but maybe I'm lucky right so we all kind of look out for each other take care of each other help um with different things going on um so um but yeah so with the this individualistic Right. It, that's that's what's building these silos. And um, we need to sort of recognize that we're coming at these issues with that individualistic mentality and sort of say, no, I'm going to stop that <laughs> and try to really think about who can who's the best person to work with. And, you know, um, being open to hearing from someone who might know a little bit more than you because they went to school for that <laughs> or I have that right, experience. Right. And I like how you keep talking about how you can be connected within your community. And I really think that the connections are the answer here. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them are sort of informal connections, right? Um, a lot of like word of mouth. So if you're a part of whatever community you're a part of, you know who might be able to help you with with different things, whether you need someone to be a babysitter or, you know, if you're trying to find a job or whatever, whatever it is. And so there's a lot of these um a lot of these informal connections. And I think we really need to harness those um, and like build upon them. And that's why we need to speak. I mean, I'm an anthropologist, right? So not not really in practice, but at heart, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. we need to speak to the people in the communities about like right. what's working for you, what's successful. Because, you know, if it goes top down and I'm like a healthcare institution person and I say, oh, this, this will work for this community. And you're like totally missing off what, base. Yeah, yeah, totally off base. And it's just, it's not going to work and it's going to be a waste of resources. Um, so I think really... Um, talking to people and finding out what they need and what they think is best to address it. But also, um, like you mentioned before, like don't reinvent the wheel. Like most of the communities where we want to do, you know, where we want to make any sort of changes, um, whether that's, you know, addressing social needs for health or whatever change it is, there's probably like the community has probably already recognized that need or that issue. And they're probably already doing something about it. So kind of find out what it is. And again, like invest in that, um, work with them on that.
Right. So for example, you know, you could have um, somebody from the community who has a certain service present to the doctors in the community so that they know about them so that they can refer to them. Because what I was thinking before is, you know, there may be things going through word of mouth, but only some people get that word of mouth and other people are missing out on it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, another example. So we actually have like a food pantry, like next to my clinic, like there's a community center. And like, it took years, I think, for us to realize that it was there. <laughs> so, oh, wow. um, you know, it's sort of like, like, we don't, you know, we, I, I walk by that building every day, but I've never gone into that building. Um, and so I think just, you know, being willing to go into that building um, and, and just talk to, talk to people in the community to figure out, um, what's what's already going on and spreading spreading the word right no i think that that's really really valuable and you can find that out say as a healthcare professional by asking your families in your practice yeah starting to you know make lists i just got a list of feeding therapists from a local gastroenterologist i never thought to ask before it's like Mm -hmm. 10 pages long for all of nasa suffolk queens oh wow yeah right so i mean we really have to have those resources and connect to them and not just think that it's just about i'm going to refer to the gastro i'm going to refer to the cardiologist the other piece of it, though, too, is if we're going to try to partner more with community-based organizations, or at least illuminate the services they provide, like they need to, like it needs to be sustainable. Like they need to be funded <laughs> somehow. Right. So, um, which is which is part of the challenge. Um, right. No, for sure. I've been through that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wanted to have you talk just a minute about Maslow's hierarchy. Oh yeah. So this um, also going back to some theory stuff, and I'm not an expert on this, um, did not do thesis research on this one, but I, I, I Googled um, Maslow's hierarchy, and I found out that it was created by Abraham Maslow, who is a psychologist. Now, I know about Maslow's hierarchy. I did not know that his name was Abraham Maslow. So um, anyways, so he is a psychologist, though, who developed a theory that we need to have our most basic needs met before we can achieve higher level needs. Um, so what does that mean? First, we need to have our physiologic needs met. We need to have like have food, water. We need to be warm and not cold, and we need to be able to get enough rest um, to be healthy. Um, the next kind of level beyond that, um, higher up need is our safety needs. So making sure we feel safe, secure, you know, not threatened. Um, the next level beyond that is our needs for belongingness and love, and then also being able to give love. Um, And then once we have those needs met, we feel like we belong, we feel loved, then we can focus on achieving these like higher, higher level needs of self-respect, respecting others. Um, Beyond that, our aesthetic needs, making our lives more beautiful. Um, And then ultimately, we can achieve self-actualization. So that was his like highest, highest level need. That is when we reach our full potential and are like the best people that we can be. Um, So The way, like, I think I, when I first learned about this, like, it kind of seemed like, you know, developmental psychology, right? So as you grow older, you start to be able to meet those needs more independently, each of those different levels of the hierarchy. But for an individual whose physiologic or safety needs are not met, they can never reach that full potential. They can never reach that self-actualization. And it's best for society, all of the different communities, you know, wherever we live, um, it's best for our whole society for all of us to be able to reach that full potential. Um, And so, you know, we need to make sure that even if it doesn't directly affect us, that, you know, the next neighborhood over maybe, like their social needs need to be met because you know what, it's going to impact me because we are all interconnected and intertwined. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for someone who grows up in, in poverty or in a community where like women don't become doctors, right? Like that person might have so much potential, but it's not going to be actualized if some of their basic needs are not met or even that belongingness, right? Feeling like you belong to um, a group of doctors or whatever, um, whatever it might be. Um, so we need to pro- help everybody be able to get all of those needs met um, to reach full potential. And that hopefully will make, you know, will help us get rid of some of these barriers that we keep facing um, that we've been talking about. Right. I love that was very comprehensive. You went all the way through. (laughs) I was thinking, you know, when I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think about that it's so important, you know, as a physician, other healthcare professional to be aware of where my patient is holding, right? Like if I'm 
pushing. I, I shouldn't be pushing something on them. They may not have that on their plate. It just may not possibly fit on their plate because they have food insecurity, for example, right? Or they're in a crisis at home with something. And I, I can't know about everything, right. but I'm, I am seeing that screening would really help me. Yeah. Or even just asking. So like, I mean, this was coming from another doctor who's not a pediatrician, but once told the story, like, you know, there was a patient who had breast cancer um, and just wasn't going for follow-up scans. And like, she kept calling this patient to remind her of, you know, these appointments with, you know, whatever radiologist it was. Um, and eventually, and it took months, found out that the patient was being evicted. And it was just too stressful to deal with the housing need that like the ultrasound or whatever, like that was just like an afterthought. It was not mm -hmm. even close to the front of this patient's mind. And so that's, I, there's another movement. This is like, it's called what matters to you. So I'm going to mm -hmm. like give recognition of this, um, of this movement. That's actually an international movement that I recently learned about. Um, and so you can, you can Google it and find it, but it's really like asking patients at the beginning or, you know, whatever profession you are, or even if you're just a, a, like someone's friend, like, and you're getting together for coffee, like, you know, what do you want to talk about today? What's going on mm -hmm. in your life? What matters most to you today? What do you want to get out of this visit? And so um, that is like, like a huge thing to be able to make sure you're on the same page as your patient or as your friend or whoever it is um, as your student and make sure that you're helping them meet their needs. Um, you know, without having that, that mismatch. I love that so much. I'm going to find that. I'm going to also mm -hmm. try to link it in. That is phenomenal. I think you've given us a lot of food for thought. Anything else you want to add that we didn't cover? Um, I don't, I don't know. I guess just, you know, everyone, you know, take care of each other. We're a much more like globally interconnected world than we ever were before. Um, especially we re realized that with COVID. So just important taking care of each other, taking care of yourself, right? The oxygen mask. Um, and like, I think my biggest message is like, we need to invest in like social care and social services yeah, because yeah. that otherwise we will not be able to, um, like, like we can't do healthcare without that. You really can't. And sensitively, right? And awareness. I think there's so many pieces to this. I mean, there are so many subtopics we could have gone off on. <laughs> this is just scratching the surface, but I'm really grateful to you for sharing all this information with us. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me and for, you know, bringing this topic to light. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to wish you a good Shabbos and also a Chag Kasher for Sameach. Yes, you too. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.